0: On today's episode, we have a medical anthropologist. Jessica joins us for a conversation around the power of psychedelics, grief and loss, and how to make meaning when you're presented with the opportunity to redefine yourself. I really appreciate all the vulnerability and honesty that she brought to this conversation and I think so many people are going to resonate with your journey. Also, if you're kind of nerdy like me and all of these topics, then look on the show notes below. I add research studies with hyperlinks, videos, just stuff. If any of this really resonates with you and you want to learn more, there's links to just start doing that process below. And any book or any person that's ever mentioned on the show, I usually put all of that stuff below. So check it out and tune in to today's episode. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 Well, hi, it's nice to meet you. Hey, nice to meet you. Is there anything specific that you feel like you want to talk about today or any thoughts about recording today? How are you feeling? Yeah, so a lot of people tend to
1: reach out to me to talk about psychedelics and addiction because it's something that really interests them. But if you don't have a part, more of a particular interest... I, would, I think I would love to use this time more to speak about, like, the Maya platform, which is the
0: company that I work for, and kind of just, like, what the future of psychedelic therapy looks like. I don't come in with, like, any preconceived concept of what to talk about. I really like to leave it to the person that's in this space to kind of direct it. But equally, when we, I do that, I really want to hear about you as well.
1: So my story really comes from a... Very close, dear friend of mine. Hmm, I'm gonna restart this. Okay. I started working in the psychedelic, uh, renaissance and movement, um, about four or five years ago when I got introduced to the Montreal Psychedelic Society. I, uh, attended a talk by somebody named Catherine McLean who worked very closely in the Johns Hopkins trials, uh, in the early 2000s and um, it was, uh, Dr. Catherine McQueen that introduced me to the whole world of psychedelic assisted therapy. So this was at a time that it had been two years since I had lost my friend to, uh, substance use. And there was, uh, some kind of reaction that happened in her body upon taking heroin. And, um, mm-hmm. she had been unconscious for over 45 minutes and that was when I was 21 years old. We were both 21 and, and that was the first time I ever had an encounter with loss of a dear friend to substance use. I recall, you know, when I saw that she was going down that road, I recall going about it and addressing it in all of the wrong ways because mm. we're not really taught in school how to deal with people who are using drugs we're taught to judge it we're taught to yeah it's really a lot about judgment and I found myself in that moment in the moments where I was faced with an opportunity to express my concern I used scare tactics that inevitably pushed her away from me And I definitely took on the narrative of my drugs are better than your drugs. And this is something that happens a lot within the psychedelic community, you know, saying that psychedelics are better drugs than opiates. Or, you know, there's purpose and intention behind psychedelic use. And that's what makes them better than, you know, substances that people have real problems with you know people can have real problems with psychedelics too you know and and there's often this psychedelic exceptionalism that comes around people's recreational or even intentional use of psychedelics and so I definitely exhibited that to a friend who is using heroin and um I learned a lot from from that and it definitely carries through to my everyday and how I how I face people and how I meet people where they're at in terms of their substance use and anyways all this to say uh, when I got introduced to uh, the field of psychedelic assisted therapy this was about two years after I had lost my friend and it was about a month after my partner of the time completed his inpatient um, rehabilitation clinic which he was in for uh, cocaine and alcohol use and I recall you know that was of course Very difficult for me as a partner to watch my, my partner at the time to like struggling with cocaine and alcohol use, especially after I'd already lost a friend to substance use. And so Mm -hmm. we brought him to a rehabilitation clinic and he did for 40 days inpatient. And I remember him asking me if I stopped using cocaine and alcohol but I want to use mushrooms again and I want to take mushrooms in the forest to connect with myself and connect with my friends and with my spirit and with nature around me does that mean I've relapsed and at the time all I knew about addiction was that my best friend had died from using substances and I had not been given the tools to understand the different ways that we can use substances in a harm-reductive kind of way. So when he asked me that, I I didn't know what to say to him. Mm. And uh, when I finally arrived at Catherine McLean's talk at the Montreal Psychedelic Society, and I got introduced to this world of what's happening with psychedelic-assisted therapy in the world of Johns Hopkins, in the world of MAPS, and All of the amazing work that's being done in clinical trials, I decided in that moment, I'm going to apply for a master's degree in medical anthropology and research this very question of what happens to the people who are in long-term recovery and want to start using psychedelic substances now that we are seeing a massive shift in the cultural narrative around What psychedelics are? Are they a drug? Are they a medicine? And that's going to cause a lot of questions for people who are in long-term recovery, um, in the traditional 12-step model of, of recovery.
0: Yeah. I'm thinking of Demi Lovato and the California sober. Have you heard that term? Being sober, but still using weed Mm -hmm. as like a form. And that's kind of what I was thinking about. But there's a lot to that story that I would love to spend some time like diving even deeper into if you're willing. Absolutely. Yeah. About your, yeah, your personal experience. Uh Cause pulling it even back to when you were 21 and your friend losing I can't even imagine what emotional things you were going through at that time, and I don't want to make assumptions. And I would like to hear, like, what was that like for you?
1: Thank you so much for asking me that, and thank you for taking a minute to pay some attention to that. For me, I was surrounded by a lot of people having a lot of different reactions. A lot of our our group of friends had gone down the road of substance use as well with her so there were those kinds of energies that I was experiencing Uh, there was pain and sadness all around um Mm. you know I was really close with her family uh her name was Jessica as well so and we our birthdays were like two days apart we'd known each other since we were in grade three, really just wow, like really best friends. And so I was really close with her family and her family, we, you know, we, we were raised Jewish. um, And so there was a lot of Judaism involved in the, you know, the whole experience of her passing, which was difficult. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, and I, 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 love my heritage um I love Mm -hmm. my culture and my religion I definitely am connected to it but in those moments it was really difficult for me you know particularly having the rabbi in the ICU after she had been unconscious for over 45 minutes you know and her being on life support and people praying for her to come back Mm. was really difficult for me because I was just like, you know, if she comes back, she's not going to be the same person that she was. You know, you lose oxygen to your brain for more than seven minutes, then you're no, you, you're, you know, I think the clinical term is you're a, a vegetable, right? I don't yeah, know if there's brain a proper dead. word, brain dead, yeah. And so that was difficult. And then for the the funeral, I had asked her father if I could speak on her behalf and, and, and say something in front of everybody. And I prepared a, a beautiful speech. And because it was a religious funeral, uh, not only were the men and women separated in the, in the audience, but the women were not allowed to talk. And for Jess, oh, actually we called her Bobes, she would have been appalled. at that wow because she was not that kind of woman she was about she was actually definitely about anarchy she was she was an anarchist she was a rebel in all the ways you know she looked up to Kurt Cobain since she was young and you know she was a badass chick and to have her funeral presented in that way where her best friend Mm. and her sister and her mother couldn't even talk would have, you know, would have made her really upset, I think. And then, you know, in that moment, I was, I was just completely devastated. I was angry because I mm-hmm. just lost my best friend. But then, you know, in over time, you know, this was years ago, I've realized that funerals are to make the family feel supported and safe. And if that's what they needed in that moment to feel like, their daughter was going to the place that they want her to go. Um, and, you know, families deal like there is no right way to deal with losing a daughter, you know. So in hindsight, that all that judgment and all of that anger has has dissipated. And I understand, you know, funeral rites are something that religions give up last I'm, uh, I, I did my bachelor's in cultural anthropology where I learned a lot about funeral rites and how sacred they are to societies and, and that's the last thing that they're going to give up. And so in hindsight, I really have let go of a lot of that anger. But overall, you know, to answer your question of really what it felt for me, I was devastated that I had pushed her away. I was grateful that I at least had one more conversation with her since pushing her away, telling her that I loved her. And all I could really do was just hyper rationalize. And that was how I was able to deal with it and just say, you know, she's happier now because she wasn't, she didn't enjoy this world. And then after a month of her passing, I had a DMT experience where I was able to fully cry for the first time Mm. about it all and about what it's like to see somebody go through substance use and lose their abilities to to take control of their life and so everything I do now is very much in honor of her and is dedicated to her and what she taught me and how not to judge people's substance use and the relationships with their substances and to be accepting and loving of people who are exploring their relationships with substances
0: there's a lot of different ways you could have taken that experience and how you shaped and found meaning in it to find acceptance for other people and a lack of judgment really is a beautiful thing from such a no words could even describe event that happened in your life and just taking it back to that funeral, I'm sorry that you never got the opportunity to say goodbye and have that for you too. Because you said it's for families, but I would say you were a big part of her family being such a close friend. And so I'm sorry you never got that opportunity. Hmm. But I, I, it's beautiful that you've now come to that of letting go of that and still having compassion and understanding and empathy for her family and why they needed that for them and it takes a lot of reflection and a lot of work sitting in your thoughts sitting in what makes you uncomfortable to get there thank you
1: thank you so much for seeing the work that has been put into accepting this as my reality and a part of my story and it may, it, it often makes people really uncomfortable when I talk, when I say, mm-hmm. you know, oh yeah, I lost my best friend to heroin addiction. And a lot of people haven't experienced that, you know, a lot of people haven't even experienced loss, let alone, you know, watching somebody go through heroin addiction and, and, it, I'm realizing that I'm saying like heroin addiction as in like that's like the worst possible thing. But there's so many, you know, alcoholism could be just as ugly or just as I don't want to use that word, just as devastating. Um, mm-hmm. But this is so much a part of who I am now that, you know, I really wouldn't be here. I really, really would not be here if that never happened. I would not have looked at my partner of the time when he asked me that question about mushrooms with those with the same concern I wouldn't have even probably suggested for him to go to rehab because I wouldn't have had that experience before and then I wouldn't have done my master's degree and I wouldn't have gone down the road of psychedelic assisted therapy research I wouldn't live in Denver right now where I'm surrounded by beautiful community that love me and accept me and see me where I work for a company that inspires me you know all of that as much as there's so much pain I I wouldn't be who I am if I didn't experience that and if I didn't watch myself be psychedelic exceptionalist and tell her hey you know you should really use LSD instead of heroin Mm -hmm. or cocaine because like my drugs are better and like you'll have a better experience and if I didn't say that, I wouldn't be able to walk around talking about the ethics of, of using psychedelics. You know, I had to fail first before I can learn like, hey, that was wrong when I did how I spoke with her, how I judged her and how I was upset with her for not giving me attention when she was struggling with addiction. Mm-hmm. I'm really grateful that this is where we started because you know, a lot of times in the podcasts or, or just in talks that I'm giving, it's it's on the research that I've done. And I try and give at least five or so minutes to, to talk about that story. But it's been a while since I've gotten to really, I don't know what, it's been like 10 or so minutes that I've really got to reflect
0: on all of that. And so I'm really grateful for this opportunity. I think that the beauty of what I like to talk about on the show is this. Like I could spend Mm. the whole time talking to you about this because I think that this experience that you've had and the journey and the meaning that you've made out of it is so applicable to so many other people out there who maybe have someone struggling with addiction or are in, or maybe had a similar experience to you and are still in that stage of feeling responsible for what happened and not going through the evolution that you have. And that's a lot of truth and experience and beauty that I want to probe further into.
1: Yeah, I think
0: drug education
1: is in, you know, North America in general. I, I grew up in Canada, but I'm pretty sure it's like this in America as well. It's just basically non-existent. And I'm hoping actually right now that with drug policy reform, um, that things are changing. But it's so important not only to teach people how to use substances safely, you know, rather than saying don't use drugs, we should be teaching people how to use drugs. And, and I think that society is so afraid To teach people how to use drugs because they think that will give them the tools to use them. But what all that will do is just prevent the mal, or the misuse of drugs. And if people understand, you know, the plethora of ways that we can use substances, and I'm talking coffee, sugar, marijuana, cigarettes, and all of that, then we start to develop better relationships with them. And I think, actually, I think this may have come from some reflections that I've had in in psychedelic experiences and just in therapy in general. You know, when we do the shadow work, which is like a hot word that comes up a lot, we're not trying to pretend like the shadow doesn't exist. What we're doing is we're shedding light on the shadow so that we can name it when it comes and we can see it when it's coming out and we can develop relationships with it. And so to bring that back to substances, using substances, is if we really understand, you know, what coffee is doing to the body, what sugar is doing to the body and what heroin can do to the body, then we can really be so much more discerning about the ways we want to interact with these substances
0: definitely i was thinking as you were saying this about sex education it's the same fear like oh we don't want to teach children sex education because then they're going to be having sex but by not doing that then it's just making the whole mess worse that we do the education to prevent disease or health concerns like it's just like and the same i think logic applies in this situation right And equally, you were talking about shadow work. I think a lot of people don't even know what that means. I would love if you could just explain a little bit more. Mm -hmm. One of the large narratives within the world of psychedelic therapy
1: is that it's not the substance that's going to fix you. You still have to do the dirty work afterwards. And, you know, I was just listening to... Rick Doblin's most recent podcast, for instance, on on Joe Rogan. And he was saying how the 60s really created this perspective of psychedelics as being this silver bullet that's just going to fix everything. And in this new wave of the renaissance, of the psychedelic renaissance, it's extremely important to make sure that we are graceful in the ways that we are presenting the benefits of psychedelic substances and that we ensure that people understand that the psychedelic can only show you so much and that you really need to do the work afterwards to implement the lessons that you had learned and so that's why in the protocols for psychedelic assisted therapy after each experimental session there's There are three integration sessions that follow until your next experimental session. And because the integration is the most important component of doing psychedelic work, internal, you know, self growth. And so part of that is developing relationships with the shadow. And, you know, a lot of people in the new age world are are talking about shadow work. And I don't I wouldn't call myself an expert on shadow work. Um, there's get, probably going to be somebody that can give you a really good definition of it. But I know that I've been doing my own shadow work. And and what that means is what I was saying before is really just calling out my dark side and naming it when it comes about. And it's not about trying to reduce the shadow. It's not about removing all of our inner demons because that's that's not realistic. And our demons or our shadow are there for a reason. They're there to protect us from old trauma. They're there to remind us of old trauma and say, you know, oh I'm gonna engage in this pretty like toxic pattern or behavior because I had to learn how to do that after, you know, this terrible experience. And we've developed these uh, coping mechanisms that are not always healthy for us. And so for me, my shadow work involves catching myself when I'm engaging in behaviors that I don't like about myself and that I'm not proud of. And it's not about not doing them. You know, and it's not about shaming myself when I catch myself doing it. For me, it's being grateful to myself for being able to acknowledge it and say, oh, great, you caught it. Like, I, You caught it this time a little bit earlier than
0: last time. Hmm. That means that we're getting to know ourselves a little bit more. I do want to ask, then, if you're willing to share. Yeah. You, you're talking about the importance of integrating the psychedelic experience afterwards. When you were telling your specific narrative of how you got into this work, you mentioned a DMT trip being extremely influential in that could you tell me about the integration and what that trip looked like? I mean, people listening may have never had a DMT experience, so they don't even know what to imagine when you say that. I'd love to hear more about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, going to say right off
1: the bat that I did not do integration for that experience. (laughs) I was young. Um, I didn't know about integration at the time. And This kind of brings us right back to the importance of education. But, you know, I was at a music festival and I was on, I was on LSD. And there was like a crazy rainstorm that was coming. And I ran into my friends who were camping with me. They were running towards their tent. And in my head, I was just running from the rain. I didn't know where I was going. And I was just following them. So we get in the tent and they say, OK, so we're going to do DMT now. And I was like, oh, OK, I guess the universe wants me to do DMT right now, you know, and I'd never done it before. But I did make sure to check in with the people that I was sitting with. And I said, you know, you guys all know each other really well. And I've, I've known you a little bit, but not on the level that I necessarily <laughs> am ready to be my most vulnerable open self with. And so I want to know that this space is safe for me to to be as vulnerable as I might want to be and I wanted to establish that before doing anything and so I guess that was good intuition because now in hindsight you know after doing a lot of research uh, set and setting is the is the most important aspect of taking a psychedelic substance and that was me establishing the setting And making sure that my mindset was feeling secure. Right. And, you know, they all responded saying, you know, we love you. We want you here. And they made me feel accepted and wanted and safe. And that I can be whatever version of me I want. So we passed around... The pipe in a, in a pretty ceremonial way, um, where each person had their own moments with the drug. Um, and so DMT lasts around 15 or so minutes. And so they would take three inhales of the smoke and, and then they would have their experience and we would all be sitting with them during their experience and we would kind of ask them, do you want physical touch? Do you want us to be focusing on you? Do you want us to like do our own thing? And often, you know, somebody might be so far gone that they can't communicate those things, but sometimes they can. And so everybody kind of went around and had their turn. And when it was my turn, I had a really hard time uh, inhaling the smoke because it's it's quite hard on on the throat and on the lungs. And so, uh, and that had happened to another person as well. And this other person, um, really reminded me of my friend Bobes, um, Jess. And I recall actually three months prior to this day that we were taking DNT together. I remember hanging out with this girl and saying, Hey, you know, you really remind me of my friend Bobes and she's like struggling a lot right now with heroin. And I'm really worried about her and I remember us talking briefly about it. And so I took my, my turn and I was like, Oh, it's not really working. Like nothing's really happening. You know, I was also on another substance, which is not necessarily like the best thing to be doing when you're trying a drug for the first time. I, I was on a light amount. It was a super low dose. And I had, at the time, quite extensive experience with LSD, so it wasn't too mind-altering in that moment. And then that girl that reminded me of Bobes said, it tastes so bad, I wish I could just inject it. And those words sent me into a spiral of imagining a needle Mm. going into somebody's arm, and it threw me into this emotional wave of just truly accepting that bobs had died Mm. you know just realizing what her life was because I'd never really saw it firsthand like that I saw the after effects but to really have that image in my head threw me into this world of accepting and processing the pain that I was experiencing And, and they all sat with me and cried with me and let me speak my truth and let me be my truly most vulnerable self. And so I think like in as far as DMT experiences go, you know, that's not necessarily the traditional <laughs> image of what a DMT trip looks like, but that was mine. And that's what the universe wanted me to experience. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you know, in hindsight,
0: integration would <laughs> would be good for that because that was really groundbreaking for me. And it seems like you did integration on your own because it came up naturally in your story when you were discussing the importance of the journey that you've had. So I'm sure you've done independent integration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well,
1: one thing I was just going to say was, you know, I've been using psychedelics for around 10 years now. And the lessons that I have taken is that you don't need to take a substance to have a psychedelic experience mm-hmm. anymore, at least for me. I don't need to. To me, I started to view, you know, regular day-to-day experiences as psychedelic experiences. And, and so, for example, like a breakup is something that within our modern day society is like, oh, it's a breakup. Like we all go through that. But for so many people, that's like completely groundbreaking and earth shattering. Mm-hmm. And when you think about what is a psychedelic experience, like why do we call them psychedelic Like what does psychedelic mean? It means mind manifesting or mind altering. When you have, you know, let's take a breakup, for instance, you know, that you have a reality, you have a reality that you wake up to every day. And that you know, you have that partner in your life, you have that person, you know, who you are in that relationship, you know, who you have these ideas of what your life is going to look like tomorrow, what your life is going to look like in five years. And that is your current reality that's your current mind state and when we take a psychedelic what happens is that you have an opportunity to see your reality in a different way but to me these regular kind of experiences like a breakup or losing a friend which of course they're difficult that to me is a psychedelic experience you know moving to a new country all these Things that we experience need integration as much as a psychedelic experience mm-hmm. to me. You know, it's a, a substance induced psychedelic experience. We, we need these opportunities to integrate. And what, what does that mean to integrate? It's such a big and convoluted word. To me, it means like, okay, well, what happened here? What happened before that experience? What happened during? And what do I want to happen after? And how do I make that happen? You know, what are the practices that need to be put into place? And so, for instance, if you have an ayahuasca experience and you decide that you want to be vegetarian, let's just say to take some simple example, then you're going to start changing your diet and you're going to start purchasing foods that are different and you're going to start cooking for yourself in different ways. Those are the ways that you're going to integrate the whatever lesson that you saw, you know, maybe the lesson that you had was, oh, uh, you know, I'm harming animals, whatever. I'm just trying to take an example that's really easy to put our hands on. But then in, in relate, like, let's say a breakup, you know, there's going to be integrative steps as well is, OK, well, you know, let's say I, I cheated on somebody. Oh, well, that's a huge lesson. I don't want to do that again. You know, or I got cheated on like, well, what happened? How did I deal with that? And so for me, you know, as you were just saying, like it looks like I've integrated that experience, that DMT experiences, because to me, I see all of the difficult experiences that I undergo, all the pain as psychedelic experiences that are lessons for me to learn from.
0: Which takes a very strong character.
1: Yeah. Hmm.
0: Right? Cause I mean, I mean, what you're saying, yes, 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 yes. And so many people don't do that because Well, I don't know why, but I would think maybe because it's really hard to face the things that you're talking about facing. Yeah. And that's the shadow work. That's making friends with our monsters
1: and saying, yeah, that is a part of me. Yeah. I do have trauma around relating with other uh, opposite sex. And as a result, I'm going to be jealous or as a result, I'm going to be this. And this is who I am. And the more we learn, About those parts and pieces of ourselves and the more we develop those relationships, then the better we can show up for the people around us because we know our boundaries and we know our edges.
0: Right. I think it takes a special thing, though, because I want to call out, you said, that's who I am. And I want to push there of like the in-between of recognizing your past and what makes you who you are, but also recognizing that at any point you could change directions. Because you know what I mean, right? The trauma, we have our own experiences of trauma and you acknowledge that, but equally, I think every day you get to make the choice of how do I want to respond to that and which direction do I want to go into. And so I think that if we say it, it defines us, I think it it keeps us kind of in this like trapped cage of like, this is how I respond based on that. And I know that's probably not what you meant at all. But like, I think it's so powerful to know that every day you can make that choice. And that's how change happens. And I think it takes your step first, right? What am I doing that I like? What am I doing that I don't like? And what do I need to change to start making it more of what I value and more of what I admire in the world? And like, everyone has that freedom. But it's just not easy because it takes the steps you're talking about.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I really appreciate you bringing that up, actually, because it's true that I wasn't
1: trying to say that, but so many people can infer that from what I'm saying, and it's really there is such a fine line between calling our trauma, knowing our trauma, and then like using it as a crutch. Yep, and it's so hard to discern where that
0: line is drawn. I mean, well, because you have trauma, I have my own shared trauma. So, I mean, I think everybody has their own trauma and experience in the world that mm. shapes them. But yeah, that is a very it, – it's such a fine line of knowing it, acknowledging it, and still seeing all of the freedom. Mm-hmm. And
1: And, you know, the thing is, is that we are – as human beings, we're meant to evolve and we're meant to change. And we're not – we don't need to be stuck in any old version of ourselves and – growth is a beautiful and important thing and and every day we get to choose what is the version of me that I want to present today it doesn't need to be always predicated on who we were before yeah but that will allow you to discern and decide oh you know what yesterday yesterday I was this version of myself and today I don't want to be that version of myself you know and today I'm going to be maybe more kind to my body or I'm going to be more paying more attention to my community around me and listening to those
0: around me and you know. Exactly. And this is why I have been writing about this because I find it so particularly interesting because to exist in this world, right, and have some semblance of meaning we create this narrative right we live in we live in the now like we only ever live in the present but to have like a sense of self we look back on the past and say like this is who i am this is what i've been through and this is like my history that makes me me today but in doing mm. so kind of like a force of gravity like keep ourselves stuck on the earth and it makes it heavy to move and to change and to just dance through life and take different directions when we hold on to a narrative that is inherently not in the present at all. It's kind of like a baggage we carry that like defines us. The other side then is you just live in every moment as like, I am who I am and I, I'm, I'm not defined by anything and I don't like labels and other things. And it's like, I feel like there's a good place in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's awareness, it's mindfulness, it's
1: patience, being kind to yourself and
0: learning and growing. And that's all we can do. Yeah, I think sometimes trauma has like a beautiful way of, you know, like a fire that scorches a field and everything's dead there. It's, you know, what remains will stay. But from there you build and you have just immense space to build whatever you want on top of that. And I think there really is a beauty to the tragedy of trauma and like how we make meaning of those experiences really, it changes the world. Your trauma propelled you down a path to do what you're doing today and you're making mm-hmm. infinitely more ripples in the community being honest about your experience and the work that you're doing mm-hmm. the
1: analogy that you gave about a burning field mm-hmm. right yeah it's funny because there's this old older tradition and way a form of agriculture which is called slash and burn
0: mm-hmm.
1: agriculture and you the the idea is that you need to be burning the top of the soil so that you can renew the soil and that things need to die before you can build new things on it. But in that analogy, like it replenishes the soil. I don't know how that how that's going to land. But I, you know, it it sparked
0: that thought in me and I kind of like wanted to build more on it. Yeah, I. I wanted to build on that specific thought too. And I, cause don't they talk about this too with wildfires? How it's a very natural process and that it actually opens up a lot of seeds to create new growth by doing that as well. Hmm. I didn't know that. A lot of what you're talking about, breakups, you were talking about those as well. It it is a grieving. Exactly. It is a grieving of the life that you had expectations for yourself and that person, the connection. All of these times are grief and loss. And then what do we do to make meaning of that? Yeah. And that's exactly what integration is, is making meaning of the experience
1: and bringing that with you in your day-to-day after the experience. And I love how you said it's a grieving process because that's what I had to, like, sit through when me and and my partner of, of that, from that story that I was telling you, you mm. know, we were together for seven years. Wow. And, you know, ending that relationship together was completely just, well, who am I now? Yep. You know, I was that person that most people said, oh, you know they've been in like the most solid relationship I've ever seen. They've been together forever. And like, I was that person who was dedicated to my partner Mm. and I was, you know, ready to become ready to be a mother, ready to buy a house and all of those things. And then all of a sudden the earth underneath me (laughs) completely shatters and the rug is pulled from under me. And I get, I have an opportunity to say, Okay, what's next? And that's what happens with psychedelic, with substance induced psychedelic experiences too, right? Sometimes people have these really intense experiences, and they realize like, I'm gonna quit my job, you know. And and it's advised actually to try not to do any life altering changes um, after two weeks of taking a psychedelic, um, <laughs> which is which is good. But really, you want to think about those changes before you make any permanent decisions but you get an opportunity to say like whoa okay who's the next version of me that i want to be right or what are the next things that i want to start implementing right and and that's the hard work and that's that's the dirty work that needs to be done in psychedelic assisted therapy the integration you know it's not just the substance that's going to fix you it's how much do you want to build on yourself how much do you want to like work on dismantling like these old patterns that you've been using as coping mechanisms like that's so hard to let go of exactly and that's the dirty work that's the grunt work that's the muddy work that takes time and it's slow and it's painful
0: but it's so rewarding it's painful as hell (laughs) 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 i released i don't know if you saw this i released in one of the episodes previously on abortion it was the first time that i had a spoken publicly about it to my religious family and I was sitting in that work with my therapist just crying but telling her like I'm so excited to be coming into the space of being out about it but this work is not easy and it's painful and I'm scared Mm. and like yeah so as you were saying that I was just remembering like my personal the last time I said that was in therapy and it's like sometimes you can know that you want the change. Yeah. But still know that the change is going to be hard, painful. And I was literally just crying because I knew it was going to be hard. Mm. Yeah. Mm.
1: And it was. Thank you so much for sharing that.
0: Yeah. Thank you Mm -hmm. for listening. (laughs) Um, I always like to have these real conversations of like what it's like to actually be in these emotions and like a lot of talk of change is so exciting and it's, and it's, Oh, you could be anything. You could be anything, but like there is a lot of it that is just sometimes closing down relationships that no longer serve you or enacting boundaries that change the relationship dynamics. And that's Mm. not easy and it can be really hard.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it requires so much discipline because we have our comfort spaces, you know, I have this friend, really close friend of mine, who's just an outstanding human being that's suffering um, with something called akathisia, which is an illness that, that there's not a lot, enough research on right now and there's not enough awareness on, but it is a possible side effect of getting off of antidepressant and antipsychotic medications. And what happens is that people have experienced bits of Terror that take over um, the mental space that are just unbearable and uh, incomparable to any pain that people have experienced before. And so I don't know a lot about it. And I know that it's, it's something that it needs so much more research on. Mm -hmm. But the way that she always explained her depression was that it was like this old, dirty, stained mattress that has like your imprinted your body imprinted in it and it's so comfortable in there because it's your body but you know that you need to get out of that bed Mm. and you know you need to get it's like that's just gonna suck you in there and that's what our old patterns are and our all these things that we've learned to start doing in order to cope with the pain and you know intergenerational trauma and family trauma all sorts of things like this this image of this old dirty mattress that has like our body imprinted like yeah it's comfortable because you've been there for so long yeah and then I have like this other perspective in my life that life begins outside of the comfort zone that's when you get to start growing and experiencing and being excited. And it's, it's so uncomfortable. It's so not fun to do these things. And to just like, you know, sit in a room that you don't know anybody. And you're just like, Hi, like, I'm new here. I just moved here or something. And, but that's where you really start to know, okay, who is Jessica? And like, who, where does she start? And where does she begin? And what parts of her are we leaving over
0: there? And what are the parts that we want to take on. Exactly. May I always be strong enough to choose growth over fear?
1: Mm. And I've
0: always tried to hold on to that because sometimes the growth is really scary. And I feel like I go through life kind of waiting, thinking about it like a bungee jump. Like I'm never going to make that jump and I'm waiting for someone to push me. I'm waiting for the universe to come to me and be like, now's the time to do it. Go. And it just never happens. And. I want to be very real in the sense I have this podcast, right? I talk about all these things and I myself had never broken up with someone until very recently Mm. and I think I was waiting for the universe. It's like you start to notice patterns that are not healthy and you start to think, wow, I love this person, but I don't like this, this and that, but it's like I've never jumped. I've never been the person to say, I'm going to choose singleness and the unknown away from the safety and the relationship that I have here. So I talk about all this stuff and it's still so, so hard. And especially as someone who leans into their um chosen community very much, relationships have always been such a strong point. And so I talk a lot of mad talk on this podcast and I'm just owning up to the fact that I'm only just out crossing this bridge.
1: Yeah. And you know what? like you were saying before there are these steps in change and in growth and the first one is just we could just name it yeah and that's already huge oh just name it and then and then like we got to start like putting in the pieces Mm -hmm. so that you could stand on like a stable and enough foundation to actually make the change exactly and because that can take a lot of time but naming it on its own takes so much and And to say that that's not growing, like not taking action is not growing, is is really doing a disservice to ourselves. Yes. Because being able to acknowledge and be honest with ourselves and say like, okay, that needs to change. I'm not ready for the change yet, but I know it needs to change. And that's huge. Right.
0: As long as you continue to lean into it.
1: Mm -hmm. Half the time
0: I go, that's really big, but maybe like tomorrow's problem. (laughs) Like not today, Uh because today Uh I'm busy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But we got to be kind to ourselves. Yes. We're doing so much. Yes. You know, just being humans. <laughs> exactly. of trying to balance all these different things. But I think it's important because, right, people like you come on the show that have a space and a direction for what they want to do with their life and are very passionate about the work that they do. And you're in the space doing it. And you didn't just get there magically. There were so no many. Way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there were so many small steps of the way where you listened to yourself and said, this is what I'm passionate about. And this is the direction that I'm going to go. And I'm going to name it. And then I'm going to take one step here and one step there to get where you're at now. Because I'm sure so many people could look up to people like you in the space doing the work that they're actually passionate about.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for recognizing that. You know, I hear these, I remember hearing all these stories of people in the psychedelic scene just being like, oh, I just like stumbled upon it, you know, and I just got really lucky and I'm just like, where, (laughs) like, (laughs) what, like, horseshoe is up your ass? Yeah. Really? For me, it took so much time. And you know, I remember, um, I remember my partner at the time saying to me and, I'm sorry if you're listening. (laughs) I'm throwing you under the bus right now. Do it. Do it. (laughs) He said, he's like, you know, when are you going to get a real job (gasps) so that, like, we can have, like, buy a house and, like, start our life together? you know because i was indefinite student that i was just going to be a student forever kind of thing and he you know he wanted this he wanted this like very traditional lifestyle he wanted to buy a house he wanted to start a family and he's like you know when are you going to like stop the like do the thing that you're saying you're going to do and so that we can start investing and all this stuff and stop working in a coffee shop kind of thing you know and i said to him i was like honey <laughs> It ain't going to be for a while, <laughs> and you better realize that this is a patient game that I am playing.
0: Yes, and you have bigger plans than to earn the love in a house of a man. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. bigger plans.
1: Yeah. yeah, and I told him, I said, I'm playing the long game, and this is going to take time. I completed my master's degree, yes, and I landed a job yeah. in a startup company that's building a beautiful software for helping psychedelic therapists and I get to be the research manager and I get, I got to build my role that fits me you know a medical anthropologist in the space of psychedelics now I get to write research reports based Hell on what's happening yes. in psychedelic therapy and I completely manifested that and built it and I worked really hard and long and I sacrificed so much and I'm here and I live in Denver now I got I got relocated and they supported my visa and all this stuff happened but it took years of free volunteer work I did so much volunteer work within the community before I can actually my rent is paid you know by the thing that I'm most passionate about and that's success to me
0: (laughs) yes it's an incredibly long journey and you're incredibly strong to have done that
1: i was just passionate
0: (laughs) and strong thank you (laughs) yeah you were passionate but there's still so many times that i'm sure people looked at you and said what are you doing in this space Mm,
1: yeah so many times people would say you know if you want to make money in the psychedelic space you have to become a therapist no one's going to take you seriously as an anthrop i remember people saying that to me uh, not in the space. I think it was like academics that were saying that. They're like, you either have to do a PhD or you have to become a therapist. And I was like, That's in your small world.
0: I don't know. I'm gonna figure something out. It's gonna be great. <laughs> that right there is the piece that mm. you looked to yourself and said, No, I know what I'm doing and I'm gonna go get it. Watch me. I didn't
1: know what it was gonna be, but I knew it was gonna be something and When I get I I get some, you know, people reaching out to me when I was involved with the Montreal Psychedelic Society asking, you know, for consultation of like how to get involved in the field of psychedelics. And the thing that I always say is just follow your heart and trust your path and actually really have faith that like your heart is going to bring you where you need to go. And as long as you follow that passion and your curiosity, it's going to lead to greatness, especially in the psychedelic community, because I think what works so the thing that works well in the psychedelic community is when people are coming at it from a genuine space. And so if you want to be successful, particularly in this industry, you got to really be doing something that your heart is telling you to do, because we don't have space for phonies in this space. <laughs> we we don't have patience for that. And we, we don't have patience for people who are just like, oh, I see a great money opportunity here. It's like, no, that's not, that's not why we're here. We're here because, because we want to see this change happen.
0: Right. And I think that's applicable to so many areas of life is that, People really know the difference between someone who's genuine and someone who's not. You know what I mean? You have conversations with people and you can be talking about something and just inherently know that that person is just not listening. Despite giving all the cues that they are, you just feel it. They're not genuine. They don't care about you. And it's, it's indescribable things, but it's real nonetheless an experience that we have. Mm-hmm. And I think that so many people are like, how do I, how do I do this well? How do I do this well? And it's like, you bring your voice your experience and your genuine passion and ideas and you will go places that's what we all crave
1: mm mm-hmm. mhm
0: yeah and then that's when we have
1: a more beautiful society you know when people are just standing in their fullest truth and the fullest expression of themselves and you know i say that and i think it's important to say also and acknowledge how difficult it is to do that it doesn't just come you know and and that's that's where my horseshoe came in that I never doubted my path even when I didn't know what it was even when I was surrounded by master musicians you know my brother was a graffiti artist and my friend was a chef and everybody had their thing and I remember just being like I don't know what my thing is and feeling so lost but still, you know, and then then I found it. I found the thing that, that lit me up, you know, and that's where I will say that was luck. You know, finding the thing that lights you up is so hard, especially in millennial, like, generation, when our parents were telling us, like, you could be anything. Do you know? You could be anything. So you, if you're going to choose, which you can choose, you better make sure you choose the right thing, because it could be anything you put your mind to. And then that gives us, like, this, I can't remember what the word is but paralysis of of mo- me-
0: analysis analysis paralysis
1: that's what it is yeah
0: <laughs> yeah and like when you have like so many options it makes it so much harder yeah and even marketing knows that right that's why trader joe's does well because there's less options so people buy more because when it, you look at them there's only so many options like naturally our human brains get overwhelmed by abundant possibilities so hmm. yes right You know, I'll say that that's where my
1: luck came from is really finding the thing that lit me up. And which is why I try and tell people, like, just find that thing that lights you up. And then when you find it, just follow that and then
0: you'll be happy (laughs) and it'll be hard. But yeah. Yes. Yes. Even that can be hard when societal messaging says what you're interested in is wrong. Mm. And I was wondering about that because from my personal experience, right, like I grew up conservative, but I was in my library in my college still being conservative, reading books about like the philosophy of sex and connection and other things, like literally sitting in a library like, is someone going to see that I'm reading this? And so the fact that now I'm studying sex and non-monogamy and relationships as a doctoral student in psychology is wild, right? And I never would have thought that was okay because so many messages from my culture and community told me that that's not something that you talk about. And so, like, I wonder if you had a similar experience of psychedelics being something that was like, you don't actually get a real job doing that, right? That's, that's a drug, you know, or whatever <laughs> stories you hear. Yeah, well, you know, I happen to be
1: in the right place at the right time. Right now, the world is really excited about psychedelics. It's a hot and sexy topic. Yeah. And like when I meet people and they're like, oh, what do you do? And I'm just like, oh, I work in the psychedelic healthcare industry. And they're like, wait, what? Does that mean like you do mushrooms every day? And I'm just like, yeah, that's exactly what you know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, people get so excited about it. But I will say, you know, five years ago, I had to do so much more explanation for what it was when I first got involved. Whereas now like people are like, oh yeah, you know, I heard about that. I heard that they're using this for like veterans and it's really like the, the cultural narrative has completely shifted within the, ever since Michael Pollan's book came out in 2018, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that I have even, you know, I'll, like, even though they were, I was raised religious, Jewish, my parents were always so supportive and so understanding and curious that I never had my parents saying, like, what do you mean you're going to study psychedelics? You know, I think because, like, I had been experimenting for so long before I started in that field, I went about it in this, like, oh, I'm going to go to continue, like, academia and, like, do it in this, like, proper way That when I explain it to people, then they're like, oh, that, that sounds legit. Like, and I think actually, like, that's the sweet spot of the current psychedelic renaissance right now is that, you know, in in the set, in the sixties and seventies, when it was first around, there was lacking this grace and there was lacking this, like, oh, we're going to do it your way before we can change your way. And it was much more about, like, being completely radical and changing it from the beginning. In contrast, now, you know, the way that Rick Doblin is doing it is he's hitting America where it hurts, which is its veterans, saying like, "Hey, these people need help." Like no one's going to deny that. And then it's working alongside the FDA. It's doing it in this way that it's it's like, "Okay, we'll play your game." Yeah. But then once we play your game, like we're going to show you that your rules are wrong. Yes. And then we'll change the game. And actually, like, that's the definition of a paradigm shift. And, and so in my research, I, I explored, like, the true definition of a paradigm shift, which was a term coined by Thomas Kuhn. And it's a period of, of normal science ends when the prevailing paradigm is overturned or interrupted. And so this then creates a period of revolutionary science. And so interruptions and changes to the rules of the game by posing new questions of old scientific concepts, which leads to the creation of new paradigms. Fundamental change, like a paradigm shift happens when, when fundamental change happens in, in the basic concepts and, and the practices that we have in, in day-to-day life, like the things that we've said every day and that we've accepted, like, this is fact, this is fact, this is logic. When those things change, that's when revolutionary science happens. That's when a paradigm shift happens. And that's what
0: we're seeing now. What would you name that paradigm shift? What are we shifting towards? Cognitive liberty. Mm. Tell me more. We are an
1: oppressed society when we do not have the liberty to choose what to do with our minds. And when we have cognitive liberty... When we have the liberty to do what we want with our cognition, with our consciousness, and with our thoughts. That's when we are free people. Actually, something on the side. Have you read The History of Sexuality by Michel Foucault?
0: I was thinking about reading it actually when I went to my local like bookshop recently, but then I was worried it was gonna be really, really dense. Because Foucault is it typically is dense. dense. It's dense.
1: Yeah. But he talks about essentially how it's a really complex, like, philosophy. You know
0: what? I'll buy it just from having this conversation because I already <laughs> thought about – I've read his other stuff on power and prisons and other stuff. So, like, I'm sure I would well, love yeah. it. Yeah, and this is where he talks about the concept of
1: biopower, Tell which me. is basically – I mean, I'm going to butcher That's it okay. That's okay. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's essentially saying, like, that the government had power. I don't even know if it's the government it's, or the system has power over our bodies when they tell us how to use our bodies and then we we started to like internalize like what was right and what was wrong and then through in a capillary nature you know through things like schools the nuclear family and all these other systems that have been put in place That's where the control happens over the people and the masses. And then the government didn't even need to do anything at all because the people started
0: embodying the truths. Yep. That's exactly what he talks about with punishment, how we used to have these public displays of hangings and other pieces to reinforce the punishment system. But then Mm -hmm. he talks about the panopticon. It's really this concept of the guard being in the center of this jailhouse and being able to see everyone, but the prisoners not being able to see the guard. And then he compares Mm -hmm. that to exactly what you're talking about, is that our form of control has really happened internally. Mm. that now we've internalized the punishment system and Mm -hmm. comply with it and always have this sense of being watched and like, are we complying with the systems? So, Mm -hmm. and I think that all of societal structures are really doing that, right? Like more recently in the media, there was a student who, a male student who was kicked out for wearing a skirt. And then the teachers came back with wearing skirts as well to kind of combat that. Mm. Who the hell? said that you can't be a male and wear a skirt. And where the hell did that come from? There's Mm -hmm. such like an internalized gender expectations for dress now that we have power structure Mm -hmm. dynamics with what pieces of cloth you put on your skin. That's nuts. (laughs) I'm sorry. Like, what? Yeah. You know, yeah. like this just all these expectations yeah. and it it's internalized we've all because we the narratives of what we're supposed to do to fit into a society which makes sense because we're social creatures. We all want community, we all want belonging. And so but that inherently I think of what Foucault is saying is creates these dynamics that control your internal cognition. Exactly. And so that's why, you know,
1: to me this movement and this revolution and this paradigm shift is one towards cognitive liberty and having the freedom to do what we want with with our bodies with our minds with our lives and you know for so long after the controlled substances act Mm -hmm. you know we were told that psychedelics are going to fry your brain and that was just like hardcore ingrained in us and how do we shift that narrative how do we change the facts that
0: that society knows about this it's this long and laborious Exactly. Game. <laughs> because it's a path that we've trodden multiple times. You know, thinking about nature, when you go out and walk out nature, that path that people continually walk, it becomes a permanent thing in the ground. And our cognitive abilities are the same way. We think drugs are bad, drugs are bad, drugs are bad, drugs are bad. And now we're asking everyone to take a completely different path. And it's going to take a lot of unlearning to be able to start to walk that path when your brain has been put in this perpetual direction. But I think also that's the beauty of psychedelics, right? Is you have the psychedelic mm-hmm. experience and it pulls you mm-hmm. off of that path exactly. b- when you surrender to the drug. And that is so incredibly powerful p- for people who have depression, anxiety, other things where like we get into these habitual thought patterns and it's so hard to hop out of them for even a second because it's your path that you've been walking it's hard another great analogy and i think
1: michael poland talks about this as well when the default mode network is quieted which is what happens when when you take psychedelics all of those like paths that you've been walking like a car driving in mud or something like you're trying like so much to get like out of these like hard ridges and then it's like a whole new blanket of snow
0: comes around that you can start driving on new paths. Which makes sense because we see the neuronal pathways that light up when we study in an fMRI and all these other things. Uh, we see that literally the brain makes novel neuronal connections Mm -hmm. what that's amazing Mm -hmm. like what a powerful thing that we are just learning to unlock and touch the surface of
1: Mm -hmm.
0: but that's only while you're on the substance
1: right and so then like how do we make sure that those things remain after the substance leaves our body and that's why the narrative of like you still have to do the dirty work and the integration is so important Because those neural pathways are only, you know, developing while you're on the substance and then you're no longer on the substance. And so many times people, you know, have these experiences and then they disappear into the ether of like parties or, you know. (laughs)
0: Which makes sense inherently. Like if we think about this as kind of like, oh, I'm going to take a psychedelic, I'm sitting down and I'm open to whatever lesson I'm going to learn from the teacher today, which is the mushroom. If you don't spend time studying that afterwards and actually thinking about how that applies to what you know about yourself, the world, and other things, yeah, your short-term memory is just going to toss out that narrative and that experience with due time like anything else you learn in school or anything. It actually takes Mm -hmm. work of thinking about it multiple times after for it to actually stick anywhere in your brain. Mm -hmm. That's how we actually learn. We learn from spending time mulling over these ideas otherwise literally just gets lost into your larger brain and mental space truly exactly so one of the questions taking a little bit of a shift here is i ask everyone on the show what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal
1: imposter syndrome when you realize that everybody feels (laughs) imposter syndrome You realize that it's part of the experience. When you're in it and you don't know that other people feel just as much of an imposter as you, you think so terribly about yourself. And, you know, just to say imposter syndrome is when you feel like you faked your way to get to where you were and that you don't really like have the qualifications to be where you are today I think like when you realize that everybody else in the world around you is feeling that way, like you get so much lighter on yourself. Right. And it's something that a lot of people in my life look at me and see, you know, success. I'm a manifesting generator. I just like get things done that I want done. And But people don't realize like how many times I've questioned my qualifications and that I've questioned like, am I smart enough for this? I'm such a fucking imposter. Like I didn't I don't actually deserve this and you know I just tricked my way into getting here and you know when I started my master's degree at McGill teachers said to me they said like your writing is not master's level like I don't know how you got through and like how you got accepted here and like that was the first time I really experienced like crippling imposter syndrome it comes up all the time, you know, it, it, imposter syndrome is, is so much a part of becoming a successful version of yourself. And once you realize that it's just going to keep coming and you just got to like overcome it, then it becomes a little bit easier. And and also being kind to all the people around you, knowing that they are probably feeling that way too.
0: So is that what you ground yourself in? Just the mass prevalence of um, imposter syndrome? Mm-hmm it's that no one's got it figured out
1: you know you're not the only one that hasn't got it figured out no matter how much somebody looks like they've got to figured it all out they don't <laughs> and they're questioning themselves too and they're wondering like oh d- can i really do this is this really like what i i'm meant to do and yeah especially with like social media and everybody's life looking so perfect um, it's so important to remember that everybody
0: struggles with that. Right. Exactly. I think some of my favorite moments are in connections with people. When you both let down your guard and you say, I was actually feeling this way about this situation. I didn't really know how you were feeling. And then you hear them do it. And then you both just realize like, wow, we're both just like scared humans wanting connection mm. and joy and, and community. And like, we're just trying <laughs> yeah. to be happy. I don't know. You know what I mean? And like, it allows you to have compassion for yourself at that moment and then it does allow you to look at others more compassionately knowing that we all probably deep down really want the same things of finding community safety and love mm. Western society really tells us that you have to go get it. You have to be this production-driven, capitalistic person, right, that is Uh doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it, and, like, forgetting all the other pieces that come along with the actual production, right? We're such a production-focused society, but a lot of that takes time of grieving other Mm. paths, learning more about yourself, being lost, confused, and, like, yeah, we're really missing a whole aspect Mm. of the human experience by just giving out this front Of who we are on social media, who we are in interactions, just like, let it down, be vulnerable.
1: Mm, Vulnerability is strength. Mm, I love that. Yeah, that's been my mantra lately.
0: That's beautiful. And that's what we should close on because I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. I want to. Uh, ask you to to plug like everything that to direct people your way if anyone really resonated with what you said today
1: yeah i guess i just like want people to reach out to me like if people want to so if people want to connect with me i the, my favorite way is to do one-on-one conversations with people and i'm comfortable giving out my my personal email address which is just gmail at gmail.com and you can find me on social, um, on Facebook, I'm Jazz, so J-A-Z, um, Kadash. Um, and uh, yeah, please reach out to me. I love connecting with people who are looking to get involved in the psychedelic space. It is a long and treacherous road, but if you love it, it wants you there. Yes.
0: Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. This was really lovely.
1: Thank you so
0: much, Nicole. I yes. really enjoyed this. Good, I'm glad. If you enjoyed today's conversation, then subscribe for new episodes released every Wednesday and follow us on Instagram at Modern Anarchy Podcast, where we open up a dialogue about all of these topics. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. And a special thanks to one of my favorite artists, Yor Smith, for the intro and outro song to this show.